have some sense of well-being, some deep sense of well-being in life. And this is a big part of the practice that we often overlook, actually. Are we moving in our lives towards really developing uh, inner qualities that really bring with them a sense of healing, a sense of well-being, a sense of ease, a sense of happiness? This is a a huge chunk of the practice and uh, not to be overlooked. Wholesome nourishment and all the ways that that comes about and the exploration of the ways that comes about And the other factor is the factor of investigation, that we're coming close to our life and seeking to understand our life. And understanding, in Dharma terms, means uh, understanding that brings freedom, that brings peace. It's not intellectual, abstract, or cocktail party conversation. It's it's something that really uh, makes a difference in our life. That's what understanding means. Investigation is to look at our life in ways that bring the understanding that leads to freedom. And these two aspects, wholesome nourishment and investigation, uh, in a way f- form the whole path, in, in a way. And the Buddha keeps emphasizing this. They have an interrelationship, though, uh, with the investigation, uh, brings freedom, brings a sense of ease, and so is, is nourishing. And the nourishment itself, the wholesome nourishment, the cultivation of those qualities, uh, has almost inherently in it uh, uh, a capacity to develop a space, a climate inside that is conducive for investigation. So we might want to investigate, but if the mind is scattered and we feel ill at ease, uh, of course it's possible, but the well-being and the calmness really aid that investigation. So when we work with the breath, uh, and now we've introduced the metta practice, these, these practices are for, for this wholesome nourishment, and they create a climate in which we can investigate. So I know for myself, and I think, I think it's probably true for all, all human beings, that we only really grow uh, in a climate of kindness. I don't know if you've been in uh, certain relationships or teaching student situations or, or uh, where, where that climate is not there, where there's a sense of pressure or judgmentalism and how uh, stifling it is to our growth. So if we're interested in understanding, if we're interested in growing, we have to really address our inner climate in some way. And can that move towards being a climate of kindness? It's a hugely important question for human beings. And we may come to places like this and have a bit of an agenda, sometimes without even realizing it, an agenda of self-improvement or getting rid of some aspects of our personality that we uh, really don't like, basically, that we're rejecting. And that agenda is almost... Uh, well, a bit like a cancer, actually. It's going to be a burden. It's going to, uh, it's going to affect the whole process in, in not very good ways. Aspiration is important in practice. We are moving towards what is beautiful. 
we are cultivating what is beautiful, can we find a way of moving towards what's beautiful, of cultivating that's actually coming from a place of kindness and that carries with it kindness. So it's not something about judgment, self-improvement, beating ourselves up. Sometimes we understand this, this situation, we understand that we're in it, and there's an awareness that we're putting pressure on ourselves. Um, and sometimes just the awareness of it is enough to ease it, to let it go. Sometimes. And so just to notice, ah, it's that pattern of pressure, and it eases. But sometimes it's not enough. And, you know, we talk about mindfulness, but it's just not enough. It's not enough. And uh, sometimes these, these patterns are, are deeply ingrained. They, they may start uh, very early in our life. So can we actually have some space and patience to work around what might be, you know, in the, in the lingo, might be our karma, might be deeply held patterns. And just that that's, uh, that's part of our humanity. That's part of our inheritance. And can we just say, okay, this is what's on my plate, this is what, what I'm dealing with. It's okay. When we do the metta practice, or when we uh, invite kindness into our mindfulness practice, it's important, it's important, as Catherine was saying today in the instructions for the metta, it's important to realize love is not actually just a feeling. Okay? It's lovely when there is that feeling of love, and that is uh, something that we uh, yearn for as human beings. And when it's there, you know, open to it, lovely, enjoy it. But actually love, if we, if we go into the question of what love is, it's not just a feeling, it can't just be that. That would limit it. And perhaps actually love is something infinite. So we can't rely too much on the presence of a feeling. Perhaps if we expand what we're talking about a little bit, maybe to say love might be just the intention at times. All we're doing is planting the intention of goodwill, of kindness, of acceptance. Like planting seeds. And some will bear fruit, we don't know when, but, but uh, nature has its course. So this factor of uh, kindness to ourselves, and we start the meta practice that way, and it's absolutely an indispensable factor in in the process of of the path unfolding. We have to uh, really address that question: kindness to ourselves, acceptance of ourselves. But. In a way, there's a bigger picture uh, than that. And what's happening here is we're a group of people, a sangha, a community that's come together uh, to practice together. Can there actually be, running through our time here, uh, running through our meditations, informing our meditations, a sense of that, a sense of actually love, concern, actually extending out to, to everyone who's practicing here. That I'm not here alone practicing, I'm, I'm in, a, in a community.
practicing together. It's difficult sometimes uh, with with the silence because we actually don't know each other mostly. And so we just see a few impressions and then the mind jumps in and starts making assessments and judgments uh, based on very little information. But this is what human minds do. And of course that kind of judging doesn't uh, just happen on on retreat. I was reminded a little while ago of something that happened many years ago when I, I lived in America. And I went one beautiful summer's day uh, to, to be at the beach uh, by the ocean, a really amazing place called Singing Beach. And um, there were, there was, it was late afternoon, there were, there were a lot of people around, and um, I was sitting there and really just soaking up the sky and, and the, the whole thing and uh, then I noticed this man <laughs> uh, walking around with a metal detector an old man with a metal detector on the beach you know on the sand and I Im- oh, I don't know how quick it was but it was pretty quick I immediately assumed he's, he's grubbing around looking for old coins that may be worth something that he can then you know, sell and try to get a little money. How can you do that? It's such a glorious day in the sky, and that you know, so small-minded and all this. And jibber, 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 jibber. And I'm pretty sure he started talking to me because I was probably too stupid to engage him in conversation. <laughs> and it actually turned out what well, he told me that he was going around the beach with his metal detector to find uh, sharp pieces of metal. Uh, that people would leave on the beach or, or whatever or would, would find their way onto the beach to stop people cutting themselves. It's complete, completely different from what I had imagined. And um, luckily enough, we, we actually got into a conversation. He told me a little bit about himself. And he was a very old man. He had been a fisherman all his life until his wife got cancer and he didn't have insurance being a self-employed fisherman and in the States there is no uh, national health like we have here. So he had to sell his whole business and everything to pay for his wife's treatment and it ended up that she actually uh, died anyway. So now he had no, no job or anything. And he would spend a lot of time doing this kind of thing. I, I was just completely... It, it made a real impression on me, just how wrong I could be. And afterwards he, you know, he said, thank you for talking to me. And it was obvious that uh, probably m- he'd be on the beach doing this kind of thing and pretty much ignored, you know, just an old man. He didn't look particularly smart or anything, just going about his business. And just when we don't have that uh, interaction, when we don't know about people, how quickly the mind comes in. And so here there's... There's, uh, you know, the situation of silence. It's quite packed in the hall. And we don't know. And so just to have some space around what the mind is doing uh, without words. It's possible, it's very possible, to be in the silence and actually that somehow the quality of silence actually lends itself uh, to developing a sensitivity to a flow of love, a flow of uh, care and connection with each other in the silence 
that actually isn't communicated by words. And that's something magically in the silence that, uh, that can be open to. We can open to that sensitivity. I think it's natural uh, for us as, as human beings to begin practice with a sense of my practice and what I want and uh, where I'm going to go. And we're, we're practicing for ourselves and that's completely normal. You know, we feel the suffering in our lives and uh, Buddha's teaching purports to address that suffering. So we, we uh, come to it for that reason. But I wonder actually how, how long that can last as the sort of fuel for our practice. Um, I don't know. If it's just about me, just me and my practice and my process and my problems and my path and blah, blah, blah. Maybe the fruit that it will bear will be a little bit dry and <coughs> shriveled. Maybe. Can we really expect a different kind of result uh, than the approach we're taking? If the approach is a little bit constricted and selfish, can we really expect this sudden blossoming of complete unconditional love that's supposed to be a goal? So we're a lot of people in the hall and it might be that uh, this time of year there's colds and whatever going on and someone coughs and there's irritation. Can't you blow? Sort of they shuffle. You know, can't you sit still? <laughs> um, very normal, very normal. Yeah. Or maybe they are sitting still and you're, you're shuffling and you think, who do they think they are? Um, or it's the other way around you know uh, we're coughing or or as someone told me a while ago they didn't want to come into the meditation hall they were too afraid to come into the meditation hall because their stomach was gurgling and they thought that would disturb people and it was really a lot of anxiety for them That's that's a high high level of anxiety you know Either way, whether it's irritation of others or, or fear of how I'm seeming, either way, it's a bit wrapped up in myself, my practice, what I want here. <clears throat> Can we actually, is there a possibility of, of tuning into something bigger, a bigger sense, a bigger picture? If we think about what is, what is the bigger picture and the really bigger picture... <laughs> It's that, uh, well, the really, really bigger picture is that the universe is, I read the other day, 13.7 billion years old, which is a long time. <laughs> and um, and we, we're coming together uh, for a very brief period in that, it's so short. And the context of our lives, even within that, is actually so short, so brief. Actually, to have this sense of the briefness of our lives as uh, an almost constant bra- backdrop. Our lives, what, 60, 80, 100 max years? In the context of this absolute vastness of time and space. And we get a sense, and then within that, we're coming together here for some days 
people who are uh, wanting, having similar aspirations, wanting freedom, wanting peace, wanting love, wanting to understand. And and we're, that's the bigger picture. And can someone, can can we remind ourselves of that and have that inform how we are here? So practice, um, ultimately, uh, is for all beings. It's not just for ourselves. Not even for the people here, or Buddhists, or, or you know, people we feel in common with. It's really for all beings. And I I think. Uh, very realistically, actually, this isn't something, you know, that's a sort of nice, uh, fuzzy uh, idea. It's actually, I think, people do come to a point in their practice when something kind of shifts inside. And it's, it's more of a sense of, I can't quite go on orienting my life, my practice, my sense of journey, just for this, for me, or for a few people around me. Something just, mm, it just doesn't fit that way anymore. It's something snaps. And so, and has a, a genuine sense of that really, really, really practice is about uh, the welfare of all beings. And it's not, it's something very real. Now, that might sound lofty, and actually it is lofty, but uh, it's, it's actually the case that we, we don't usually start that way, as I said, and our <coughs> intentions in practice transform over time. So uh, if I think back to when I started practicing, I was, I was at university and I just saw a poster, and it said something about meditation, blah, 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 blah. Uh, something about clarity of mind or something was one of the things it said, and I thought, great. <laughs> I'll go to this meditation class. <laughs> I'll get some of this clarity of mind business. <laughs> then I can study more quickly, shrink the studying time, and have more time to drink. <laughs> which, at that time, seemed to be the main purpose of, of university life. <laughs> so, since that time, uh, my intention has, has changed. It's grown a little bit. <laughs> uh, but these things change. They're so not to expect... Not to expect this sort of vast uh, aspiration at first, but to have that as a possibility. That really is that. That is really the direction that practice is going. And can we um, encourage that direction and have that just a sense of that informing what we're doing here? So, kindness to ourselves, kindness to the sangha here, kindness to all beings. That's very much um, in, in what we might call the, the field of what ordinarily gets talked about when we talk about metta, about loving kindness. Kindness towards beings. If we, I'd actually like to go a bit, bit deeper in, into, into this question of love, what love is and what its place is. <clears throat> a bit deeper also into the question of what mindfulness is. When I started, when I, after a few years of meditation, uh, it, seemed, it seemed what I was trying to do was try and make the mindfulness as precise as possible. Very clear, what's going on? Am I, am I with it clearly? Am I really with it? Uh, really noticing it sharply? Is my mind clear, bright? Uh, and, and noticing very precisely. 
That's a hugely important aspect of what the mind can do and what mindfulness is. Very important. We have that power of mind, that ability of mind to really go close and investigate with real precision. But it's only one aspect of what mindfulness is about. And if, if that aspect gets uh, overemphasized, then for some people, sometimes, it can lead to a kind of dryness and a sense of disconnection. When I, you know, I think maybe I had a period where I, I sort of became this uh, mindfulness machine, you know. <laughs> it it really was, it was helpful to some extent. Actually, I have to be honest, but uh, but really, it, it wasn't really all that helpful in the long run. And there was actually a sense of disconnection emotionally. <clears throat> if we think more broadly, what. What, what are the qualities involved in mindfulness? There's actually a lot of qualities. So mindfulness has a quality of presence to it, a quality of attention. Patience is part of my mindfulness. <coughs> Non-judgmentalism is part of mindfulness. Accept- <coughs> acceptance is part of mindfulness. If you think about all those qualities, they're actually qualities of love acceptance, think about someone coming to you uh, that you love, maybe they have a difficulty, how are, how are you with that? With acceptance, with patience, with non-judgmentalism, with attention. <coughs> so these kind of factors of love are actually developed in, in a broad sense in mindfulness. I want to take it a little bit deeper. There's a Mahayana Sutra called the Lotus Sutra, which I've never read. I think it's like that big. But it's that one line in it says, See all things with the eyes of compassion. See all things with the eyes of compassion. Which is a very, I think, very beautiful uh, poetically to, to say that. But it's not actually saying, See all beings with the eyes of compassion. It's saying, See all things with the eyes of compassion. So in, in the Mahayana uh, tradition, compassion and love are used interchangeably. So see all things with the eyes of love. So what's this, what, what's this, te- what's this telling us? What's it pointing to? Uh, things means, means actually anything. So a thought, an emotion, a sensation in the body, the foot touching the floor, uh, a feeling a sight, a sound, any, anything at all that makes an impression on consciousness, what, is, what would it be to see that with love? What would that mean? And how might we actually practice that way? So mindfulness has this, this one quality of precision. We could draw out another quality, and this quality of acceptance, or, or, or uh, acceptance being something very similar to love. We could actually just draw that out a little bit and uh, begin uh, at times, if you want, uh, instead of emphasizing just the precision, noting, being very clear, what would it be to shift the balance and actually completely uh, go into a kind of radical welcoming mode, radical acceptance? Or even to begin to actually direct a flow, a sense of love at our experience, at an emotion, at a body sensation, at a mind state, at a thought. 
a sense of bathing it in love, holding it in love, the way you would hold a child. Or just the sense of a real open door, and there's uh, everything is completely welcome in that. So things arise and they stay and they pass. And things arise and they stay and they pass. And their arising is in that complete welcoming, complete uh, love. And they're staying also. And they're passing. Sometimes when we notice the fact that things are changing, and when we look closely they're changing very quickly, and we actually begin to notice that, in a way they're calling out for our love, they're calling out for our compassion because of their very fleeting nature. So here's an emotion, it actually just lasts a couple of seconds, then, <coughs> then nothing, maybe it comes again, maybe it comes again, and then something else. It's very fleeting nature, it's asking for a sense of... Uh, of love, can we actually somehow find a way of working that that's very much uh, a part of our practice? Really, really emphasizing that acceptance, welcoming, kindness towards the uh, elements of our experience. Now, of course, sometimes we try or we we want to, but what happens is we have we have resistance. You know, we we just something just says, no, I don't want to know, or this is stupid, or, or, or whatever. Um, but in a way, love has this quality, it can, act, it can actually be, that can be included. We can actually direct a sense of complete welcoming, complete acceptance uh, to the resistance itself. Sometimes we assume when we're being mindful that there already is acceptance in it. But what if we actually let go a little bit of, the, of being so clear about noting what's going on and actually give 98% of the energy to this acceptance quality and imbuing that? So in a way, even if there is resistance or a difficulty in just accessing any sense of that, we can include that. There's nowhere outside where we can include uh, our acceptance. Nowhere, nowhere that's not included in our acceptance, our welcoming. If we take this, this approach on to practice, if we take this approach on, I think it ends up being very interesting. What actually happens to sensations in the body, to feelings, to emotions, to, th- to mind states, thoughts, etc., perceptions. When we do this, when we just bathe them in kindness, bathe them in this radical welcoming, what actually happens, you notice, and, and it is a practice, but what actually happens is the thing itself begins to soften. It begins to fade. It begins to... Uh, lose its definition and its edges. So an emotion begins to sort of uh, just soften and kind of lose what it is, or even a, a, a painful body sensation. What's going on here? What is going on? Well, 
What's going on is that the quality of mind, the state of mind, is actually affecting the appearance of things. It's affecting how things are. So, the presence of love, uh, or the presence, say, of anger. Uh, When we're angry, we say, I'm seeing red. You know, there's an awareness that it's, uh, hopefully, that that, uh, when when there's anger, it's actually affecting my perception. So, I'm angry because they said this and my friend looks like a complete jerk and I see the horns, you know. Uh, it's, the anger is affecting perception. Love, too, affects perception. You can see this sometimes when, when we are actually angry uh, with someone. You can you do a little experiment. Sometimes, if you've been around uh, these circles for a while, the initial impulse might be, well, I'm angry at them, I need to give them metta because I shouldn't be angry at them because uh, that's not spiritual. And, uh, and so one does that. But what if, uh, just as an experiment, you actually direct the, the love to oneself? That when there's anger, it's actually a burning of the heart and it's suffering. So maybe we need, we need the loving kindness at that point. So we're angry at this person and we direct the loving kindness towards ourselves, not to them what's very possible that will happen is actually the sense of the situation begins to soften, begins to relax a little. The sense of the perception of the other person begins to change a little. So the presence of love is something that affects our, it affects how things seem to be. <coughs> now, we may say, well, I thought I thought we were trying to be with things as they are. I thought that's what mindfulness and meditation was about. We can maybe talk about different approaches. So there is the place for that, of being very precise. And there's a place for this too. What we might discover, though, if we go into a bit more deeply, is that actually there's an assumption involved in what mindfulness is. We assume, and actually it's because we as teachers tell you, <laughs> we assume that, that mindfulness is something that's kind of neutral. So here's an object, whatever it is, an emotion, a body sensation, a feeling, a thought, and mindfulness is something neutral that's just going to observe thing just as it is and I'm just going to be with things as they are, be with what is and there's a certain amount of truth to that but actually mindfulness is not, is not something neutral it's a bit of a myth <coughs> there's always some degree of uh, love or acceptance or pushing or pulling <coughs> with mindfulness, there has to be there has to be some degree of acceptance, even so some degree of love. That uh, degree will influence how how things appear. So the question is, which amount of love actually actually reveals the real the real way things are, the real object? There has to be some degree with mindful. I'm being mindful. There's some degree of acceptance. I can either emphasize that or not. There's always some degree. Which degree tells me how the thing really is? You may 
I said, well, well but mindfulness does, or, or equanimity, that thing, equanimity that I've heard about. Uh, but I think uh, with, with very deep practice, when the equanimity actually goes deep, the sense of very steady mind goes deep, actually uh, that also begins to change objects, begins to change the appearance of things, so that things begin to soften, to dissolve, to fade. They make less of an impression on consciousness. We can see this on the cushion, you know, with a pain in the knee. If we, di- if we really, really uh, emphasize this aspect of total kindness towards it, like f- a flow of kindness towards the pain or an emotion, you can see how it changes. Uh, this is assuming there isn't a hidden agenda of trying to change it. This is this genuine welcoming. And we can see it off the cushion. Uh, we can see it as, as we walk around our lives that you know, some situation happened and the presence of love and acceptance actually even uh, changes how important the situation seems to be or whether we even notice what's going on. So maybe this all sounds a bit complicated, but there's, there's something very, very significant here. On a, couple, on, on a number of levels, actually, on a number of levels. So the first level is going back to what I said at the beginning. Um, this is what the Buddha would call a skillful means. It's a way of finding some ease in, in the present moment. That to uh, bathe the present experience in kindness and love is actually a very skillful thing to do. And as human beings, we, we need that resource of wholesome nourishment, of, of uh, easeful abiding. So there's that, very important. But there are also insights here. The first one is that it's the relationship with, with things that matters more than, uh, than the thing itself, than what's going on. So it's possible, it's very possible, to have pain in the body and because there's a relationship of uh, welcoming of acceptance there's a real okayness with that pain being there because the relationship is one of uh, okayness one of ease the thing doesn't matter uh, as much as it seems to in, re- uh, in terms of our happiness and this is this is a uh, lesson that we learn over and over again in practice, and we really, until it goes down deep, and we absolutely know it, that nothing actually by itself is enough to cause us suffering. That's not to say that uh, it's at all always easy working with some of the difficulties we have as human beings, but that we know that actually the suffering comes from the relationship. When the relationship is uh, one of uh, complete welcoming, complete acceptance, one of kindness. <coughs> the suffering goes out of a situation. Sometimes we get so wrapped up in looking at the object, at what's going on, this pain, this mind state, this thought, so in, into, sucked into looking at it, or just caught up in the attentiveness to that, we don't actually have the space to see what's my relationship with it. What's my relationship with it? And can I uh, make that relationship actually one of love, even? 
I mean, to put it very, very simply, uh, either we have a relationship of peace with what's <coughs> occurring, or we have a relationship of struggle. Mostly two options. Love is, is, is a relationship of peace. Anger, irritability, rejection, judgmentalism is struggle. At an even, even deeper level, uh, there there's other insights here. If a thing, how a thing appears to me, depends on my degree of love, on a, on a, on a spectrum even we could say, if how it appears depends on my, my, what's in the heart, what's in the mind, the climate in the heart and mind, and we can see that, then we see what's in Dharma language called the emptiness of things, the emptiness of the way things are. It means that they don't exist in any way independent of the mind and the heart that's looking at them. To begin to see into that relationship of uh, of the relationship of awareness to to what's going on, relationship of mind and things, of awareness and things, any things, internal or external, to begin to look into that relationship and understand that relationship in this way, is to begin to look into what, what's called emptiness, and to begin to look into emptiness. And to begin to look into emptiness is actually to begin to open to freedom. They're one; they go completely together. If a thing doesn't exist independently, it, it doesn't have the reality that it seems to have. Things seem to exist independently, and not having that reality, it's almost like suffering doesn't have a place to stand. It doesn't have anything real to stand on. And we know instead the interdependence of things. That we are completely not separate. Actually nothing, nothing in the world, nothing out there, nothing in here, is actually separate from us, from the mind, from the heart. Complete, complete and utter interconnection. Complete and utter interpenetration even. More than interconnection. You can see this in a very deep, you know, at a very deep level in meditation, or, or actually even come back to a more sort of mundane level. Um, again, we're here in a crowded hall, and uh, or or in our life somewhere, and uh, there's a sense of maybe irritation at someone. You don't like the way they do something, or or, or whatever it is, or they said something. And again, if we come here, it's normal to approach. You know, come to Guy House for a retreat uh, and six days and could spend New Year all kinds of places. So I come here with what I want. I want to get concentrated and I want to get calm and I want to get whatever. So this what I want is something that's in the mind, sitting there, whether we know it or not. And it's, it's affecting how we're seeing. It's affecting the perceptions that we have 
what I want. The world, people, ourselves, the situation is seen, whether we know it or not, through the lens of what I want. If I want to get calm and I want to get concentrated, and then someone is doing something noisy or distracting or whatever it is, it's going to be a problem. Where that actual, what they're doing will actually be heightened in our consciousness. We'll pick that out. The, the, uh, the mind goes to that because it's been given importance by what I want. Do, would we dare to actually uh, you know, begin to play with the views we have, even the, view, <coughs> the views of being here? So instead of what I want, may, maybe what would it be to, here's the irritating person, what would it be, I'm just here to learn love. Do, could we do that? Maybe just for a little bit. Just see, here, this is something and it's pushing my buttons and I can see the, the, the possibility here. If I change my agenda, what is the agenda? Maybe we don't even know what, what our agenda is. Can I play with it? Do I have that freedom? I can play with it. What if I'm just here to learn love? Then that whole, them being irrit- irrit- irritating, <coughs> well, thank you very much. You've given me an opportunity to, to practice. If, if you're really bold, I mean, you might try, uh, actually, I'm just here to love you. <laughs> That's all I'm here for. Do, we can play with this, you know. Oftentimes we don't actually realize what the agenda is. And do we have the, can we let go of a certain, if there is some rigidity, and actually begin to explore this relationship? When the view changes, the irritation may change, and even the perception of, of the person change. So the view, the mind, affects the perception. There's this inter. inter- <laughs> So, if there's really, really, really a deep flow of acceptance and love, if we practice this way and we develop uh, this, and it is a practice, what can happen is that things begin to fade. Actually, they just they just begin to, to sort of fade from our experience. This is something very, very odd if we think about it. If I have a total, complete welcoming, this thing actually, my experience begins to fade. So someone was telling me when they had um, a pain in their back, I think it was, uh, to somewhere else, uh, and they practiced this way, just really, really just bathing it in kindness, bathing it in love, it actually disappeared. And they were scratching their heads and thinking, what is going on here? So what is going on? Love, uh, similar to the cause of equanimity, actually, maybe in its depths, in the depths of what it means, it might uh, have, it might actually have the quality of non-grasping. So we don't usually think of love that way, and especially with all the so Hollywood, uh, you know, portrayal of love. It's very that's a very sort of grasping and attached kind of love. Maybe there's 
uh, depths of love, and maybe in its depths, uh, actually love has something very, very much uh, to do with non-grasping. But actually maybe uh, they're completely intertwined. And what we begin to understand, actually, at a very deep level, what's possible to understand, is that our grasping, our pushing or pulling or hanging on, in any way, our non-acceptance, is actually what colors the world. It makes the way things appear. But even more than that, it actually makes the world appear at all. Which is uh, completely not the way we, we... regard things. If we understand this, if we, if we begin to see this, the way grasping at very subtle levels actually creates our world, uh, this is then really to see the emptiness of all things. And this leads to, in, in a way, what we could say, the, the deepest kind of freedom and the deepest kind of love, because we know that interconnection. Again, talking about love and what it means and all that, uh, we could use the language that, I don't really like the word, but um, maybe there are levels of love. I don't like the word, but I can't think of another one right now. Maybe there are levels of love. So sometimes all we can do is uh, try and have the intention for kindness, either with ourselves or with another or with what's going on. That's all we can do. We can't find that feeling. And all we can do is plant the seeds of that intention. And that's, that is an act of love. That is a, uh, a movement of love. And then there's the sort of you know, humdrum kind of love we have. I love my cat. I love my mom. I love, you know, and it's just very homely and, and lovely and, and normal human kind of lo- love. And maybe love also has other other depths that sometimes the heart, uh, you know, just something breaks open, and there's really a sense of boundless love for uh, for all everyone, for all beings, and that's very much possible. And even perhaps even a love beyond that that can't even be put into words doesn't even seem to be about all things, doesn't even seem to have an object. And what we find as human beings is that uh, one of the amazing things about being human is that we have this enormous range of our minds. We, we have, uh, our minds can move such an enormous range, our hearts can open and close, and uh, this whole range of, uh, of <coughs> love available to us, to us, and that's very much a part of being human. It it's, uh, goes with being human. So the way our experience of love Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.